I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's discussion was about cloud economics and the hyperscalers and what can be done to end run or loosen the control the hyperscalers have on the IT market and where that's going to go. And the end of the conversation, this is a full, rich, dynamic conversation. The end of the conversation came back to security, security, security. Um, software, owning your own infrastructure, the ROI of that infrastructure, we discuss it all and uh, keep coming back to some important trends to discuss and we will continue it. Where did you end up at the end of the article? Well, I think there's been not very much real research into the cost difference between um, private cloud and public cloud, or I should say kind of enterprise IT, because there isn't a standard for enterprise IT. So how do you compare apples to oranges when there's no standard for apples? Um, (laughs) Something that's not really mentioned too much about uh, public cloud services is nobody um, kind of factors in the cost of the profits that the public cloud companies make. I mean, um, Jeff Bezos isn't the richest man in the world because Amazon is cheap. Uh, he actually mentions in the article of 30% you know, AWS taking um, in general, uh, calcul- counting on a 30% margin. Well, I think that's accurate. Um, but he was also in the article focused specifically on hyperscale SaaS providers exactly. for the most, or, or 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 like a Netflix, if you can call that. Yeah. And so their let's say their IT operations capability maturity is like a four and a half or a five, right? Compare that to AWS, right? So if you look at most enterprises, if their operational IT capability is uh, two and a half, then that's not a 30% premium, right? Sure. It's now, it, it, it might be break even. And it also leads to the, you know, taking taking mm-hmm. Otto's argument in, in, in to that very point, um, Tyler, he makes pretty clear that he's only talking about the hyperscalers and that in point of fact, trying to take that same calculus and apply it to the mid market or even the just below the hyperscalers, not clear that 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 holds and that sure, there's every reason to think that there's a crossover at some point well, I, so at, in 2014, when I was still at Rackspace, I did a very detailed ROI cost comparison for digital agencies, which were one of our major market segments. And I was able to show the cost break even for VMware hosted private cloud versus AWS uh, was only about. 25,000 MRR, so monthly recurring re- revenue. Okay. Uh, now, obviously, that was seven years ago. My God, I'm getting old. But uh, the this, this same calculus holds today that the input variables have changed a little bit. Uh, but, you know, today's, uh, you, you know, all. Uh, uh, availability of sophisticated private cloud um, platforms, whether that be VMware or Nutanix or what what was the name of that uh, private cloud platform you were using, Rob? Oh, um, you are thinking about um, Proxmox. Yeah. But I mean, there's 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 all kinds of stuff out there, right? Um, and you don't have to have the same sort of in-house technical chops to efficiently run a private cloud as you did ten years ago. 
But there are two things. There's there's a couple of factors in this because one of the things I saw in that article, he was really talking about um, re-optimizing your your applications, which to me is not a, an anti-public cloud message. Um, it, it was just like, hey, you're going to have to get much better at efficiency as a consequence, mm-hmm. which I, I don't feel like people talked about very much. And then on the other side of it, um, which people seem to react to, and I think it's worth discussing more, is this: is the uh, cost of goods sold, the unit cost, linear co- linear unit cost that versus owning the assets. We've talked about this a bit. Um, you know, if you own the assets and own the software, then basically you your your ROI on that infrastructure cost is you know is much higher, can be much higher if you've done it. Um, and I, I don't feel like that got the same level of conversation in the discussion. He he also took a a, a somewhat light swipe at the fact that companies, even really big companies, are not often very sophisticated about negotiating the pricing and the price deals that they get from the CFPs. And that often they overspend or they they overbuy um, and don't pay attention to basically the the variations in the costs of what they're utilizing, mostly because the CSPs make it pretty pretty arcane and and make it pretty complicated. I mean the fact that we have, you know, friggin' Corey Quinn is a cloud economist, um, <laughs> is 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 um I, and and kudos to him. He's he's done that extraordinarily well. But you know, we have to have economists to understand our bills for this infrastructure pieces. Yeah, we and, do. And 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 he basically his answer is basically like, got to wait until you get your bill to figure out what your what your spend is going to be. That's that's not true, but it's his it's his soapbox. I do want to reread Cloudonomics by Joe Weinman. This is probably a 10-year-old book. I'm really curious how well that's held up or proven to be true. Yeah, that's a good question. I I mean the the it's interesting because the topic, the topic that we'd scheduled for today was, you know, what would the market look like without megacorps setting the direction? Um, and the megacorps were Amazon, Google, Microsoft, fundamentally. I think it's an interesting question from where we start with the article with that that post is, you know, is this really the market adapting to the services? Right. I mean, that that's a there's another missing piece in this. It's like, okay, yeah, we're in a services, service-based economy. And and that, you know, and that is changing the way we innovate, making it much faster and more elastic. Talked about that a whole bunch. And, um, but, but we're also in a place where we are adapting our tech innovation to what those providers are offering to an extent, right? The whole idea of cloud native is sort of like, oh, we're going we're to map into what, what Amazon can do well. Um, Joanne, did you want to, do you have a yeah, comment I, on that or something else? Yeah. Yeah, no, I wanted to comment on this because yesterday, and, and it's propitious that we're having this discussion today. Uh, because yesterday Salesforce announced that it was opening up the cloud behind its cloud native apps. Uh, and it's to be, I, I don't know if it's hyper cloud or whatever they're going to call it, but it's about to be unveiled. And so I posted a tweet because I've been saying for a couple of years now that really the path of least resistance for an enterprise is take advantage of the cloud behind your cloud native app and see, see whether you can get the, uh, whether you can get the, I just saw your, uh, your, oh, you're, you're, yeah, you're, yeah. Uh, you're, uh, you're, th- you're a full thesaurus today, and I absolutely love it. <laughs> Propitious, uh, uh, picky, and um, it's all peas, so maybe, maybe it's a, anyway, sorry, didn't mean to distract you. <laughs> anyway, it will be, um, profitable 
for a sales force to make that <laughs> a reality. Um, no, because I mean, if you think about it, if you have two or three major cloud native apps and those clouds, whether they're PaaS or IaaS or whatever you want to call it, the infrastructure behind them and the other services that are being used by the vendor to provide the SaaS application are made available to those enterprise users, then wouldn't that be A, your path of least resistance and B, your least costly? way to do it. So I'm interested and it's curious that they would suddenly make this available when they've been building out, quote, industry verticals, uh, expanding the marketplace and making some of those in the marketplace uh, either acquisition targets or acquirees. I think that's going to change the economic model of cloud significantly. I so go ahead. Uh, I I was just wondering if you would expand on that thought of how you think it's going to change the economic model. Well, I speaking hypothetically, and I have to do that for reasons of NDA. I would suggest to you that. The ingress and egress charges, for example, if you're already renting your apps from a Salesforce or an Oracle or whoever else, that the charging and the bill rates will have to be different because you're already paying for one part of the service. Now you're going going to be charged for other parts of the same service, which is kind of double dipping in my view. And so I think if you were to use those cloud services your overall cost per month for the SaaS, the PaaS, and the IaaS uh, would probably be lower than if you took that SaaS application and, and migrated it to a different cloud or used the other cloud services from a hyperscaler in conjunction with what you were using the SaaS applications for. Okay. I don't think that Salesforce is going to double dip. I could see Oracle maybe, but. <laughs> or Amazon, but yeah. And that's exactly where, as you were talking about it, I was going to. It's it's the economics of having it all in uh, the same place where you're already paying for the premium rental. And then you're getting this other stuff sort of as, uh, Oh, and for an extra five bucks, you get. <laughs> well, that, that's what I call the, the walled garden uh, right. strategy, right? And yeah. I guess the question is, how is that different than what AWS is already doing? Because you're not paying egress charges for uh, data moving back and forth between your microservices running on Lambda or EC2 and RDS. You, you would if they cross regions. That's right. true. that's true. But if they, if if it's within an AZ, then you're not paying any egress charges. I I appreciate that. I think mm. to your point, we would probably have to look at and and I'd be curious if there's anybody who's got some sort of a table version of this. If you look at cost of cloud native app in that situation. Um, and other applications that you would put in hybrid clouds and if you brought those all into the original cloud native. And I guess you would have to look at the workloads and a bunch of other variables to see if it really made sense. But I have a feeling that this is the path that several are going to go down. So I'd be curious to get your thoughts on the graphic that I pasted into the chat. <laughs> I also I wish the Lawrence was on this call. I, I don't see it. <laughs> Did you not? Uh, private versus public PNG. Yeah, that one. Oh. <laughs> Why am I not seeing it? Yeah, I'm not seeing it at all. Oh, that's interesting. I try and download it, and it doesn't come up with a name. I don't see it at all. 
Well, I'll, I'll it's it's showing up in my chat, which is weird. Yeah, it's in my chat, and when I and it says download, and when I click to download, there's no file to download. Ah, that's better. There it is. I I I posted. I so I tweeted it out so you can get to it um, via that link as well. Okay. I'll share it. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm limited. I'm using my phone. Oh, no worries. I'll I'll I, put it on screen once I find it. Once I find the uh, right tab, I can share it. There you go. All right, that's easier. Beautiful. Uh, so this is this is my my. Uh, I I don't claim to be uh, an artist, <laughs> but what I'm trying to do is is show that there that uh, data egress, workload volatility, and utilization how they play a role in um, the choice of public, private, or hybrid, and that basically saying that as volatility goes up and utilization. Um, is lower. Uh, public cloud is is obviously a more optimal choice, but at some point where you have to deal with the egress charges, um, and if you're able to have the IT operational ability to drive high utilization, that a private cloud approach or a hybrid approach um, can be more cost effective for certain. And this is different. By workload, right? It's not necessarily true for, you know, you know, saying an enterprise should go like all public cloud or all private cloud or anything like that. Well, I, I think that this is going to require more study, clearly. But, you know, from my perspective, I know that if I were to break down the costs and spend uh, projections that I have on companies like Salesforce that there might be savings there. And I, I would look at that as being no pun intended, the fourth dimension. Yeah. At, at some point it's like, how do you, how do you even depict that? Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was trying to say, okay, well, and, and we're not even talking about things like, um, Affinity to specific tool sets like um, AWS SageMaker or Watson or Bigtable or whatever, right? You know, right, or Quantum <laughs> or Quantum. Or I mean, it, it, we. I, I was thinking about maybe using a radar graph to try to depict that, but I couldn't figure out how to make that work. But but to your point, it is it's super complex when yeah. you consider all of those factors. Yeah, and I think you know it, it's interesting because the other thing that came up, and and this goes to cost um, for cloud and edge, and and I will be quiet after this because I'm sure there's other people that want to mm-hmm. speak. Um, but the other factor that came up yesterday is, uh, or rather today, is about beacons and the use of edge computing in and and cloud for retailers. And I put the question out to Mark Teeley, amongst others, saying, do you consider beacons edge devices or part of edge computing? And he his answer, like many others, was like, well, it's like a sensor. You know, I mean, it's not really, it's not the compute side or the storage side. So I don't really consider it that way. And I'm of two minds because the way things are changing very rapidly, um, the edge device, the gateway plus the cloud plus um, a serverless app would actually be replaced by one edge device. And if that's the case, then Apple just became a hyperscaler because they own that market. And the I edge device, like 
Yeah. So are you thinking like the tiles, like their tiles being able to then beacon through people's phones generically? I, I, no. Because. No, it's, it's intelligence on that sensor. Yeah, well, there's. Yeah, I compute on that sensor. Yeah. Hmm. The, the challenge that I get into in the way you're describing that, though, is it, it's incredibly flat. It's every, and this might be the way it turns out, every device basically has enough logic to do its own thing, talk to its neighbors if it needs to. Uh, you don't need gateways. You don't need local processing. Basically, it just sends, it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a self-contained unit. Well, um, until you start dealing with swarms. Right. Sorry, yeah, but then you start dealing with what? Swarms. Swarm. It, but even in a swarm, you t generally have, you know, big nodes and little nodes to do heavier processing. That would be the, the nature would be the, you'd have a whole bunch of sensors, relatively light sensors. And then to make the swarm work, you, you would have some type of computational center. Actually, does anybody know on those IBM drone Flights, are those managed by a central, you know, a grounded computer, or do they actually do all of the coordination locally? So it's, I don't know how those work, but you're going to have, and this is the way cars are going to work. You've got to have a mesh, but then you also have to have an edge compute gateway that can handle uh, things like broadcast of specific information that is not known by any of the things in the local uh, mesh. So you the mesh is intelligent, but it doesn't have all the information. Mm -hmm. So you still have uh, gateway computing uh, cloud edge, but you also have intelligent edge that's beyond the cloud edge that is in communication with all the other meshes so swarms autonomous vehicles on on the road in local vicinity and things like that so and yeah when you get to retail you don't need as much intelligence but you could still oh man there's an old science fiction movie where someone's walking through a uh a retail street or something a retail mall and all these uh, these graphics pop up that are trying to entice the person as they walk along the street. It's like, ah! and that's what I, I think of when Joanne says, yes, retail. <laughs> but I, I could see retail getting doing a ton of video, doing sediment analysis and right. things like that based exactly. on video. Well, the reason that I brought it up is because I have an old diagram of, you know, that under other circumstances I would post, but I can always send out or put on Twitter, um, which is basically an edge. To, uh, sorry, it's a it's a gateway speaking to a cloud, speaking to a serverless app, speaking to data. And what it's doing is it's pulling all of the information through NBIOT um, rather than to your phone. But if you took out the gateway device and the cloud and had an edge device pulling in that same data that could store or could receive, process, possibly store or discard, then, then that too becomes a way of adding on to edge versus and, and taking advantage of the latency aspect of edge versus using cloud. If you're using a CRM like, like uh, Salesforce for it, then it becomes a little bit more complicated, but the question then becomes, does this be, is this the bridge that we're looking for between edge and cloud? Use edge where it makes sense, cloud for other, all within the same back end of a cloud native app. Tyler, you're shaking your head, which I can see. I'm, and... 
I'm I was I I went in the direction when you were talking that I usually do, which is that the the challenges in the data integration, the 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 data models being different. That what what you're talking about is important, but it's necessary, but not sufficient. Um, so that's I kind of took a tangent. Sorry. No, that's okay. I I was looking at how you would figure it into the cost of cloud. Uh, I this is this is actually one of the scenarios that gives me uh, a lot of pause and concern is that the the scenario I see rolling forward is the hyperscalers are the are best positioned to basically uh, own you know a degree of localized compute tied back to their big infrastructures like snowballs and Azure edges. And what we see is literally just uh, a compounding of um, the, you know, the, them being the platform. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the, the walls of the walled gardens are just continuing to rise because of them adding additional capabilities to their platform. I would not at all be surprised to see Salesforce announce a snowflake-like service in the next 12 months. I, I think that's pretty likely. Mm -hmm. I would see it in six. <laughs> Should we do a pool? We we can do a betting. I, I I don't I wouldn't bet against Joanne because she might have some insider trading information. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't get dinged for that. I'm Canadian. <laughs> you even got my husband laughing on that. <laughs> yeah, they're but so one of the original questions I had on this is, you know, they're they're steamrolling everything. And is is there a is there an exit? So that's an excellent question because part of the, the issue is with these um with what Joanne's talking about is if you don't have consistency across that point at the edge back into the the back office if you will on the cloud then it's a lot more costly and so if these guys come up with yeah this is how you connect then it's back into the walled garden it's just that the garden is now at the edge whether they own the hardware or not they own the interfaces well it's a, and the data form of, it's a form of colonization. I mean, you're, <laughs> you're basically you're basically colonizing the edge. You're using the edge, and the customers at the edge, or even the the vendors at the edge that are making use of it to deliver their own third party services. And Verizon's done that with the with the uh, with the the home the smart home i mean all the boxes they put in their in the homes are things that can be that little uh edge cloud if you will or whatever but yeah they've been building that for at least four years now may i ask a, a question kind of going back to the the salesforce announcement sure and I guess I'm asking the assembled multitudes here. Um, why would Salesforce make available their infrastructure to third parties? What is the what are the motivation? Is it revenue? Is it um, a different form of lock-in? Is it for example, some of the things that we've just spoken about, because if they try to use the story that says, you know, we built this infrastructure for our own purposes, and now we've got excess capacity, and we've got it managed to a fine fairly well now, so 
we can make it available to the public at large. Kind of goes back to that fable that Amazon told about why AWS came into being, which was we built it for ourselves and it was so successful and we you know, were capable of scaling it that we just thought it would be a it'd be a good thing. Yeah, I, I you know I I don't buy that for a moment. So um, my question to Rocky, to Joanne, to Richard, as Tyler, of course, why would but not Salesforce Rob. actually go into this business? And of course, Rob, I know Rob's going to have, have an opinion. But why would Salesforce actually make, an, make a point of doing this and make a point of doing it now? Uh, I'll, I'll go first. Um, I think, Rich, you've got to look at their acquisition strategy to help you or, or, or their acquisition history to inform what their strategy is. So if you look at the acquisitions they've made in the last few years, like MuleSoft and Tableau, then it's not hard to speculate on the reasons behind opening up their infrastructure. Opening up Salesforce's infrastructure? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're you also they also acquired um what was that? The one of the first passes um of stuff running on oh, there. Heroku. Like Heroku. That's it. Yeah. It shows you uh, how often I update the Heroku stuff I use. Yeah. Well, Heroku, I think in great measure still runs on Amazon. I suspect that's right. They never did much with her. Like they, they, for their vision for Heroku never really materialized, as yeah. far as I could tell. That was a that was an element of frustration for the people that, from Heroku because I was involved in that transaction, and um, that turned into a, a as I said a, a source of real frustration for the Heroku folks that stayed on and and ran with it. Are there any whispers of Amazon getting into the application space? And would Dell be considered a megacorp? I mean, Dell's doing pretty good this year. Their stock's up 60%. And I don't think it considered, nobody ever mentions Dell in the same breath as Amazon or Azure or anything else. But yeah, Dell's not hurting. I, I can tell you why I don't consider Dell a megacorp here. I don't think they have, they do any, they have any influence in application architecture. So the, the thing the thing to me that makes the megacorps interesting from that perspective is they are literally driving architecture of technology based on services they offer and the pricing of those services. Okay, um, so would you consider SAP a megacorp? Uh, I would have in the past. I can I think I see them as as. And I know the SaaS is doing a ton of soft, a uh, ton of service work, but I, I actually see them as a, you know, software company. And the, the question, I mean, to me, the megacorp, the, the counterbalance to megacorps is, can we go back to having software? Well, wait That's a second. Post. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry Rob, for in the interruption. I said sorry. SAP, not SAS. And I'm not sure who right. you're referring to. No, I, I, I was thinking SAP also. SAP okay. tried to pivot into doing SaaS-based delivery of SAP quite a bit. Right. I don't know to what, what extent it was successful. Um, it's not. Okay. So, right in, and that's... But Adobe has been very successful. It's a small company, so it's like a mini megacorp. But the just following them a little bit is fascinating. And they made some very smart acquisitions in the media services space um, yeah. where, where they really understood the back end part of what they were doing and built some really big SaaS. But that's in, me incredibly vertical. Um, even the, the Adobe subscription I have is, you know, and Microsoft did a good job converting uh, Windows or not Windows, but Office to a subscription. Um, mm -hmm. 
which I find incredibly frustrating, by the way. A lot of these things, me, that like, I just literally took my credit card out and paid $1,000 for a wiki subscription that to me feels like should have been $200 software that we installed on a server. Um, and I, I, have this, I have the feeling about Slack where we're paying a lot of money to Slack for something that is very siloed and limited and has no upper bounds on the cost because of the way we use it. Right. Um, well, the yeah. the only point that I would make in consideration of the, the Dells of the world, I don't count Dell out. I think that they're going to make a play and it's going to be from the hardware side into um, this general trend that I happen to be seeing, which is take the top five SaaS providers who built on cloud, their own proprietary version of what is considered cloud. And in the next 12 months, you're going to see a lot of them come into this space, trying to take a jab at the AWS or the GCP or the whoever you want to name as a cloud hyperscaler. What, is, what does take a, take a jab mean to you? Grab some of this the space. Does yeah. that mean bringing it back? Does that mean offering a competing service or does that mean offering an alternate approach? Like, you know, basically making repatriation a more attractive cost option. I think both. Okay. And, and what, what do you? They'll try both because they're going to go and figure out where they can make the money. So some people will say repatriation. Some people will say the other. And so we're going to see us. Uh, a lot of activity in the area and then it'll all eventually sift out into the stuff that wins. I mean, this is, go ahead, go ahead. On the question of repatriation, one of the things that seems to be ignored generally is repatriation back to what or where. Yeah. This is this is you know they're not re people are they're not repatriating are not really repatriating they're re they're taking responsibility more responsibility but they where where are they placing it are they rebuilding their glass houses no no they're putting the it house. into into um, basically colos they're putting it into. Mm-hmm. Uh, distributed, reasonably distributed, uh, regionalized data centers where they themselves are outsourcing a lot of the care and feeding of the hardware so that they can take responsibility primarily for its operation, administration, and management up above that. That, That's a good point, Rich. I mean, how is it... From the customer perspective, how is it functionally different for being at AWS versus running a hyper-converged cluster with VMware or Nutanix or whatever in in Equinix with a CSP managing all of the infrastructure for you? Yeah. Um. It's not that. I mean, this is this is you know our bread and butter with Rack N. It's the the question that you have with that. Since Amazon doesn't actually take ownership of the management, you you own you still have responsibility for the infrastructure and management, and and so these companies that are doing it at sufficient scale. And to me, this is the whole point of that that Cassandra article. If you're doing this at scale already, you're 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 there's a whole bottom half of that that you you know you're. Just add in the extra management piece, take over it, and do you know? Just own the whole stack again, and then you'll have ROI from selling the gear. Um, the well, yeah, there's, from- there's definitely this. The, he's right about that premium at, at the at the hardware layer, right? I mean, that's what you're where you're going with that, right, Rob? It's well, but there's also a software thing to me in this that is it, there's there's three pieces. There's owning the hardware. They're scaling the management because you can, right? We, we, the industry made a huge mistake by not not making infrastructure manageable and focusing on the management overhead. And I think that's where Cloud walked in and said, 
this is too hard for you to manage. Let the pros do it. Mm-hmm. And and that to me was was a foreseeable problem. I know because I actually talked to Michael Dell about this um, ten years ago. That that if they didn't make the infrastructure easier to manage, people would just give up managing it. Um, and then software itself, the cost, right? The, hey, yay! It's really easy to run Slack. But paying on a per user basis for Slack is actually really expensive. Yes. Um, and and the, the challenge that we, we get back to is the model where I pay incrementally per use on things, and it's basically a linear scale, is really is is not a high ROI model for me. It means that every time I grow, my costs grow proportionally instead of disproportionately. Yeah, you and, lose and that, your economy of scale. You you lose that that economy of scale curve. And and unless you're a hyperscaler, you don't have the you don't have the muscle to push on the CSPs to change their pricing significantly so that you get off of this linear linear price, you know, yeah, it was uh, cost issue. It was about three years ago where um, somebody who did a lot of consulting in the uh, lift and shift in Amazon world said that you really needed about a $5 million spend before Amazon would negotiate with you. Yeah, that's about right. And, you know, Microsoft is pretty much the same way. Microsoft, Amazon, both. If you're below a certain kind of ASP, they want you to deal with their partners, their value-added resellers. They don't want it. Their sales organization does not want to deal with you directly. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's and, and that, that's you know, well up into the enterprise pyramid. Does does this create an opportunity for software? Yes, absolutely. I think what the software, the key software players are missing out a huge part of the market because of it. I think we're looking at the next version of what is called SaaS, and it's SaaS Plus, and this is where they want to take back their control. They're never going to get the, you know, right. pay, a, pay a fee and pay maintenance and pay on top of maintenance and so forth and so on again speaking from the old CIO in me, but they have a way to start monetizing those services. And of all the partners that they're going to look to, it's going to be the telcos because they're looking at delivering. I don't know about in the U S with respect to your big carriers, but here the telecoms have already come to the point of saying it's X amount of money Per, for your internet charge on a monthly basis based on X number of devices. And anything above that, you have to go to the next category. And anything above that, you have to go to the next category still. So it's not no longer about data. It's about devices. And they're now provisioning based on you know X number of devices. So the software mm-hmm. makers are trying to get into that action as well uh, by opening up some of their clouds and adding those services on and partnering with the delivery system, meaning the networking, comms channels, whatever. However, you're going to get to that data is going to become part and parcel. Can you and within the next two years, that's it about the role of the telcos in this marriage? I'm sorry? Can you be more explicit about the, the distinct roles of the networks, the telcos, in this marriage between the networks and the software, the, the SaaS, the big, the bigger, possibly even the mid-sized SaaS players, because it's, you know, telcos have traditionally not been very um, successful moving up the, the food chain. They, they understand networks, but that's about the extent of it is usually the, the way people think of them. Well, why do you, why do you 
why do you think the networks, the telcos, will be able to figure out this partnership? Because what will, they, what will they bring to the party? They're going to bring their quote unquote guarantees of 5G or 6G and the always uptimes and all their usual guarantee stuff. But Rich, I would say to you, go look at what HPE showed in the Discover and their verticalization of a telecom telco vertical and look at what AT&T has been talking about for about 18 months with respect to delivering 5G for industrial use. Now, I realize industrial and consumer are different, but they're already having discussions about pricing plans for some of the biggest factories in the U.S. are in Georgia, which happens to be a hub for automotive. They're doing the same thing in Michigan and looking at other industries, including, by the way, food production, because that's about to get a big boost of robotics and automation. And they and, want a piece of that pie. And how would you characterize the SaaS players with whom this marriage is likely to take place? Characterize them in what sense? Well, you've talked about uh, automotive. You've talked about agriculture. Is it yep. the... Is it the is it the oracles and SAPs of the world that have a, um, you know, a basically a division that actively pursue that is actively segmented according to verticals, or is it yes. something new? No, okay. it's it's divisions that already exist. If you look at the structure of SAP, particularly by industry, um, they do more e-commerce transactions than anyone, any other company in the world. And because of that, they, they have a vested interest. And so where they're not doing well with Rise, which is SAP on the cloud, right. they're trying to find another way around that by saying, hey, you know, big telco, you're going to have to deliver 5G into this, you know, factory of, of any sort or large enterprise, even insurance companies. So now you're going to have all these devices Let's do this together and we'll both make money. And how would you how would you characterize the situation where a Microsoft, which also verticalizes according to markets, yeah, and has you know a big ERP and back office, you know, constituency, not yeah. at the levels of you know selling to General Motors necessarily or but they they certainly have a a lot of lot of lot of uh, lot of the landscape. They have a lot of territory. What yeah. happens there? The strategic partnerships that all these companies have in place, and what they're doing with Outpost, is where they're looking to make their inroad, and inroad in a way to make up for what they lost in terms of the largest corporations licensing agreements with office and other things. This is their way, their back road in. The other one I would say that's also going to take the same back road. And the reason I asked about the uh, beacons is because while it's not well discussed in, in the general circle, one of the primary revenue sources for Apple is its beacon business. And you now bet. that the technology has evolved to the point that beacons now become a significant part of edge for everybody in the National Retail Foundation or Federation and a number of other kinds of businesses, they too will make money or okay. make hay while the sun shines. Yeah. And, and, and interestingly enough, they have, they have a, you know, a license to print money on the consumer and retail side that many of the others don't. So Correct. It's, it's a nice, it's a nice division of, of uh, you know, carving up the world. Now I buy it. And thank you. I agree with you, but I was asking the question more to get a, you know, kind of laying it out, laying out the territory for us. Yeah, no problem. And along with Apple and their beacons, I don't know if you've seen T-Mobile. T-Mobile has it, but it's, all that their beacons actually have the 
I don't know if they already have 5G built into them, but that's certainly where they're going. So their beacons are already for sale. I think in some ways they're using the consumer market as a way to uh, flesh out where they really want it to be, see how people use them and then go forward and be able to sell them in large quantities for a much cheaper price. But they're certainly out there with their beacons, if you will. Yeah. It's It's their A-B test. Yeah. And that's going to have a knock-on effect in the telecom or datacom industries because the switching fabrics the you know top of wrap the all of the all of the quote data center resident networking and switching that has to go into place in order to support the number of endpoints that we're talking about with 5G Right. It's going to make somebody a lot of money. I don't know that it's going to be Cisco. So I'm I'm trying to figure out who in that whole arena is likely to win. I would say don't count Cisco out, but don't count ARM out either. Yeah, that's true. Which is now NVIDIA. And NVIDIA. Definitely don't count them. Well, which might be NVIDIA. Yeah. This is this is where the 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 players that we're talking about, and this is I just don't haven't seen this happening well enough. And Dell's a great example. In order for this to happen, we're gonna have to have software industry coming back as a thing that you do. Install software, run software, manage software. Um and those are muscles that we have let atrophy. Or like for the hardware vendors case, they never actually understood how to partner with software vendors very well. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that that's, you know, that's the, the challenge with this in market is that you've, you've got these big SaaS companies that are like, oh, I can do my silo and I do my silo and I then integrate. Um, but, you know, that's, that's becoming untenable because of the amount of data that's being transferred and the security issues that are, that are unraveling from that perspective. Yeah. Um, and the loss of control from a management, right? It's very hard to cost optimize when you've you've got your your cost center spread across six different things that are integrated behind the scenes in very fragile ways. Um, but moving away from that model is going to require companies you know, regaining software management expertise and empowering platform teams and, to integrate and all this being, stuff together and being considerably less risk averse about doing so. I mean. My, in my estimation, among the, what have become the most stodgy and risk-averse companies with the possibility of getting and making serious use of all of this is the big CDNs. It's the Akamai's of this world. I mean, they have not, they've not shown up to the party as far as I can tell. And they probably won't, not in the cloud, you know, the general the cloud edge or the edge cloud, right? They're going to go edge. Edge, edge wow. is going to break all this stuff open because I, I the, the SaaS model for edge is going to be a hard model. Well, we can't, we can't underestimate the impact that culture has on these things. Mm. You know, I was thinking about like there's this natural affinity that telco and, and, and software and, Joanne, I, I think you're right on there, but I, I think back to the acquisition spree uh, telcos had in the early 20 teens uh, for cloud service providers like Terramark and Savvis and oh, yeah. all of yeah. that. And, you know, having had a front row seat to all of that, <laughs> uh, it was clearly a there was a cultural barrier that made it impossible for telecos to effectively manage cloud platforms. And a lot of that had to do with the business model, that the sales cycle of a telco is very short. The uh, They're used to selling a commodity called network bandwidth. Mm. And 
a cloud platform sale is more of a complex sale. The sales cycle is longer. You've got different margins at play. You've got different ways, different KPIs to measure the business. You've got different experiences that your leadership has had in measuring and managing these different types of business. And, and I think that's true the CDNs as as well as yeah. the telcos. You've that, got orders of magnitude larger number of of SKUs that are being offered to the to the customer from which they have to pick choose and then manage so it's there's definitely a, a huge opportunity out there with 5g but i think that there's a good chance that the telcos kind of stay in their lane as selling bandwidth just on a different network yeah. well if i could tyler i'm not going to disagree with you outright, but their key to the kingdom is called cybersecurity. And look for the telcos to start acquiring cyber firms. Uh, there was one a couple of weeks ago of a, a fairly well-respected security firm in Haifa by a telco. And I think you're going to see a lot more than that because they recognize that if we turn around and say, hey, we deliver the service and the software and the infrastructure and even the hardware devices that bring secure communications into your company, and we can back that up with a heavy security presence, that's how they're going to do it. And, and I think you need to be a little bit less parochial about the view of telcos. The American telcos are fairly stodgy in it intransigent but you get into european and hmm. i think Canadian, some singaporean and others yeah. they're a lot yeah, more uh, agile yeah like deutsch telecom and exactly yep and even here we have like two major telcos so because of that and both of them have significant government regulation um, in the case of TELUS, which is like there's Bell, Rogers, and TELUS. TELUS came into it from the security side first, then the health side. Now they're doing the home security side and business security. Rogers has been trying to flag its, its capabilities, not only as a 5G network and Bell as well as a 5G network, but both of them are, are vying for large corporate sales around their partnership with security firms and their own in-house security capabilities. So yeah. I see that yeah. model expanding worldwide. I, I, I'm, I'm, not dis, I'm not disagreeing. I, 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 so thinking about it is, could it happen? Yes. There's a good chance that we'll see a, a, a flurry of uh, acquisitions in the security space by telcos. Uh, with some, it'll end up like it did with the, the cloud services acquisitions a decade ago. Yeah. But I think it's certainly possible to do it correctly. Uh, I The acquisition of Linksys by Cisco comes to mind and the right. way that they, that they structured it from an organizational perspective uh, where you have a consumer business and an enterprise business and never the twain shall meet. If they're able to structure it correctly, they can be successful. Yeah. And it also brings up the whole issue. We've talked, and Joanne has correctly focused a lot. Well, actually, the whole group has focused a lot on enterprise as the you know the other side of the you know on the other side of the table. What about um, the the rev the the residential and the consumer side of of security and uh, the, this combination of security and and networking playing into the residential and consumer side, which arguably offers up enormous risks that need to be addressed today and are not being addressed by anybody other than possibly those two players. Yeah, and uh, what I'm seeing is Verizon and uh, Comcast are really kind of the 
the two players along those lines. AT&T is just too much of the big gorilla to actually get as much uh, small company uh, agility, but the other, but both, uh, well, T-Mobile, Comcast and Xfinity, T-Mobile with the backing of Deutsche Telekom, uh, Verizon's been in it for a while in their research and Comcast is coming up really fast because they have all those boxes already in the house and they just put fiber in our net neighborhood Comcast. So they're, they're making a play for it and they actually have the consumer perspective and uh, they understand security because they've been providing hotspots for everybody in the country for all of COVID. Yeah. I was thinking about Apple and Google. Okay. So Tyler, if I, I just want to interject one point and I apologize for interrupting. Um, The, 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 the reason that I go to Rich's point about the large enterprise and sort of focus on that is because coming from the manufacturing side, everything gets tested with the big kahunas in manufacturing from the telecoms and from many of the other providers to see what flies. And then I have been witnessing this sort of trickle down theory into the consumer space for about a year that everything that brings, everything that has to be faced in IIoT, whether it's telecom or SaaS or, you know, equipment, Tends to, they take their learnings and then they focus it on the mid-tier and then they focus it on the consumer side. And yeah. I think that same play is going to continue for the next two years. So with respect to the security in the home, I think that you're going to see movement from the telecoms buying, acquiring security companies. But to Rocky's point about the hotspots, they've already figured out a lot. And where they're... Um, running up against a wall is, believe it or not, on the pricing models. How can you now um, go and look at the consumer market where you have five devices per consumer per household, and then you have, that's just personal use, computing, uh, you know, desktop, laptop, phones, blah, 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 and then deal with the individual devices like your washing machine, your dryer, your fridge, your stove, your electrical grid, your charging station for your EV, plus all the regular consumer devices, that's where they're going to start having issues. Because you can't bring 5G directly to my home in a new build or retrofit to the closest access point outside my home uh, with 5G or 6G and tell me that I have a limitation on the number of devices without <laughs> also considering those internet ready uh, devices like my fridge, my stove, my washing machine, and my dryer. And your, and your charging left. station, to your point. Yeah. Folks, I, ha- I have to jump. This has been a great. We're, we're, yeah, Sorry. We'll over. That, no, this is awesome. This is, this, these yeah. are the conversations that we need to be having, and, and I appreciate everybody's input on it. And how dynamic the conversation was. Yes, this was great. Yes, yeah, IIoT is often overlooked by those of us who are more in the data center kind of uh, mm-hmm. IT world. Right. Well, <laughs> in, in closing thought, all I would say is you need to take it a lot more seriously because if you want to be able to predict where companies are going, this is where the, a lot of the action is taking place. Exactly. And this is where they're coming out with my next solution for the mass market will be X or Y. Yep, exactly. On that note, next, I am next, next, next week. Next week, we're talking about the edge control plane, which will be a nice. Oh, cool. Oh, okay. Great. Bye all. Bye bye. bye. See you Thanks. next week. hope you enjoyed this episode of the Cloud 2030 podcast. There are so many critical components to what we discussed about how the cloud is evolving over time and what is shaping the market. Uh, And there's a lot of trends that like software and security and ownership of infrastructure that are getting attention today 
and will be important as we, we look at how you control the cost and grow infrastructure. Absolutely critical. Next week, we're talking about the cloud control plane, edge control plane, and clearly the group today thought edge was going to be critical to how cloud evolves. And I tend to agree. I'm looking forward to seeing you on the Cloud 2030 meetings. Join us at the 2030.cloud. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.